Welcome everyone to this month's BJJ podcast. I'm Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome to one of two podcasts we're doing for the month of August from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. I would like to thank all our readers and listeners for the comments and support we've received so far for our podcast series, as well as to our authors and guest interviewers who have taken part so far. We really do appreciate all their efforts. So far this year, we have covered a range of topics, including the management of open fractures with Professor Matt Costa. We had a great dialogue between Ian Murray and Dr. Scott Rodeo on cell therapies and orthopedic surgery. And more recently, a series of podcasts to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society closed meetings. We do hope these podcasts are improving the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish here at the journal, for both you as our readers, as well as for our many authors. As you know, we hope that during the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we'll cover a range of aspects of the chosen study, emphasizing the important points of how the work has been designed, as well as the key findings from the study and how these potentially fit into each of your day-to-day -day clinical practices. We also hope to give you a behind the scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward key findings of their work. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by two of my colleagues here in Edinburgh, Ms. Chloe Scott and Professor Colin Howie, to discuss their study entitled Worse Than Death and Waiting for Joint Replacement, which will be published in the August edition of the BJJ. Welcome Chloe and Prof, and a big thank you to both of you for taking the time to join us today. So the aim of your study was to look at patients awaiting uh, hip and knee arthroplasty and categorize their health state, in particular a category known as a state worse than death. As you say in your paper, there's an increasing demand for healthcare uh, interventions to be economically viable and cost effective. To assess this, the quality or the quality adjusted life years delivered by an intervention is often calculated based on the EQ5D score, and as well as population demographics, demographics such as life expectancy. So Prof, if I could start with you, uh, can you give us a brief background to the paper, specifically the concept of qualities, the EQ5D score, and how this is used to define the term a state worse than death? Over many years, orthopaedics has looked carefully at the outcome of treatments that it's undertaken. We've moved from the surgeon's opinion to the patient's opinion, and we've developed very sophisticated uh, scores, such as the Oxford score uh, or some of the other knee and hip scores, so that we can detect differences in the way that we operate. More recently, in, in across the country, and particularly in our department, we noticed that more and more patients were complaining about the time they were kept waiting for surgery. Uh, and I thought it would be interesting to see if the waiting times had made any difference to their state and if there was any problem. The EQ5D is a general score uh, that's used across all specialties in medicine, uh, general medicine, orthopaedics, and all uh, subspecialties of medicine. It was developed in the latter half of the last century in a very scientific way, looking at the questions, uh, and it covers five domains. That's the five D. And those five Ds uh, are uh, mobility, self-care, ability to perform usual tasks, pain, and anxiety and depression. In orthopaedics, we've largely ignored it because there was only there is only three scores that you can give each of those five domains, and it seemed uh, that it perhaps didn't give us enough granularity to make decisions. However, like many people, we discovered that this was actually much more informative than we had thought in the past. What happens in EQ5D is that you don't just add up the score for each domain. Each domain is given a number one to three, uh, and each of those states, uh, each state for each individual patient is allocated one of 243 states. The difference between the EQ5D and other scores is that those 243 states were given to members of the public, and it was different members of the public in each country in Europe, uh, to assess how long would they like to live in that particular state 
And so one of the states, for, exa uh, for example, would be allocated a number, and the numbers go from minus one to one, with zero being a state on the borderline between what the public would regard as acceptable or unacceptable. And anything less than zero is a state worse than death. Since then, they've taken these numbers and they've looked at the cost utility. They've looked to see how much healthcare improvement you give the patient over time by your treatment, and you allocate the costs of giving the treatment and the costs to society of not giving the treatment. And that's how a quality is worked out. The difference in the EQ5D, including the costs of not treating the patient versus the costs of treating the patient, measured out over the period of time. That's fantastic, Robert. That's a really good overview of the EQ5D and, and obviously the quality and how that's related. So, Chloe, if I, if I come to you next, in relation to hip and knee arthroplasty, what do we already know about the cost effectiveness in terms of the quality in particular? Um, thanks, Andrew, and thanks for inviting us uh, to participate in this podcast. So, for a treatment to be considered cost effective, NICE has determined that it should cost less than £20,000 per quality gained. And for cancer therapies, uh, this figure is increased to, to less than £100,000 per quality In addition to being highly clinically effective, both total hip and total knee replacements are known to be highly cost-effective too. And in fact, work from our centre uh, by Paul Jenkins um, and colleagues published in the Bone and Joint Journal in 2013 shows that for a total hip replacement, the cost per quality um, is £1,371. And for a total knee replacement, it's £2,101. So both interventions are therefore highly cost effective. Um, to give some uh, comparison, uh, Pandya et al. published a cost effectiveness model for a statin use in the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in adults uh, in JAMA back in 20, uh, 2015. They found that uh, to reduce the 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease to 7.5%, um, half of 40 to 75-year-old adults would need treatment, and this would come at a cost of $37,000 uh, per quality. So compared to these um, other medical interventions that are well accepted, um, joint replacement is certainly proven to be cost-effective. That's really interesting, Chloe, and I think it, it really puts it into, into context in terms of the, uh, the greater wider medical community. So if we move on to your study in particular and looking at the method, methods, it's obviously a cross-sectional study using data uh, from January 2014 to September 2017 uh, that was um, uh, sourced from our Arthroplasty database here in Edinburgh. And it was uh, once patients who'd had a second Arthroplasty and those who underwent bilateral disease were excluded, there were 2,073 hip replacements and 2,168 knee replacements. So Chloe, just to give the listeners some background to joint replacement in our centre initially, and just briefly, can you describe the type of prosthesis we use and our standard sort of post-operative protocol? Um, of course. So our centre is a university teaching hospital, and we perform about 800 total hips and 800 total knees per year, um, in addition to revision arthroplasty. Our standard is to use cemented implants for both procedures. For a total hip replacement, we use a cemented exeter stem with a cemented contemporary cup, uh, normally implanted via a posterior approach. For a total knee replacement, we use the triathlon cruciate retaining total knee, uh, inserted using a measured resection technique. So postoperatively, um, both total hips and total knees are allowed to 
weight bear as able from the first post-operative morning. They start initially with a frame and progress to sticks and they normally go home on day two to four when they can do stairs independently with their sticks. They receive daily physiotherapy while in hospital um, in addition to occupational therapy and foot. And after discharge, they're reviewed at six to eight weeks by our team of arthroplasty practitioners and um, patient reported outcome measures are routinely collected um, at a year post-operatively. Great, and that sort of brings us on to our my sort of next question. So you, you described in the, in the paper when the patients uh, got the questionnaires and, and what these entailed. So you just give us a bit more detail regarding that and also how, how the waiting list and, and the, the time data was obtained and calculated. So um, our patient reported outcome questionnaires include the EQ5D, as we've already uh, mentioned, as a measure of general health and health-related quality of life. They include the appropriate Oxford score, either hip or knee, uh, and a series of detailed comorbidity uh, questions which cover 12 specific conditions including heart failure and MI, stroke, peripheral arterial disease, COPD, diabetes, connective tissue disorders and inflammatory arthropathies, kidney and liver disease um, and other musculoskeletal diseases giving back pain or pain in other joints. Whilst I know that our listeners are well versed in the joint specific Oxford scores, um, the EQ5D is, is less well understood. Uh, Professor Howie has obviously uh, gone through it in, in, in more detail. Um, using the UK scoring system, uh, the, the possible scores for your EQ5D index um, range from minus uh, 0.6 to 1, uh, with 1 defined as full health, 0 as death, and negative scores therefore worse than death. Though this terminology is provocative sounding, um, it's part of the score and has been used by a number of authors previously. And as, as we've already mentioned, the score is widely validated um, and used throughout Europe to determine uh, cost effectiveness. So our questionnaires included uh, EQ5D, Oxford knee score, comorbidity scores, and these were um, applied to patients two to three weeks prior to their surgery in a pre-assessment clinic where they were completed independently. Um, and again, these same scores were posted out to patients at a year. Um, in addition to these PROMs, uh, demographic data, including the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation um, and BMI were collected for all the patients. Okay. And with regards to the waiting list and time data, how was that collected? So I think it's important to highlight that paper isn't primarily about waiting lists but we thought uh, including this as a variable was important in the analysis because we wondered whether waiting undue amounts of time for joint replacement would affect your worse than death status. So for the time spent on the actual uh, waiting list for surgery, so the length of time from the decision to operate to the actual surgery, um, that was provided by our waiting list office. However it was more complicated to determine the weight from the primary care referral to the actual review um, in, in orthopaedic outpatients. This was made more complicated um, as not all patients listed for surgery are listed at their first orthopaedic outpatient review and some patients may be seen on a number of occasions over a couple of years before they actually reach the point of, of, of wanting um, arthroplasty. So for this reason, patients who hadn't been placed on the waiting list at their first orthopaedic outpatient review um, were excluded from the waiting time evaluation 
um, as we didn't know what the basis for the delay to surgery was. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, you just briefly mentioned the analysis there. There's obviously, um, you know, reading through the papers, obviously a lot of robust and detailed analysis that have been performed. Uh, so can you just, just for our listeners, give us a brief overview of the, the regression analysis performed and how the ROCPO analysis was used to identify the thresholds in both the Oxford hip and knee scores associated with the state worth and death category? Um, sure. So for total hip and total knee patients, they were separately um, analysed using univer univariate analysis to identify significant associations with their preoperative worse than death status. So as our sample sizes were large with 2,073 hips, 2,168 knees, um, a number of variables were associated as being um, statistically significant at the 10% level or less. Um, therefore, a multivariate analysis was performed of all of these variables significant um, at the 10% level or less. So this was a multivariate binary logistic regression analysis uh, performed using SPSFs um, to identify specifically which variables were independently associated with a worse-than-death status. Um, as Oxford scores, as we'll go on to find, uh, to hear about, uh, were found to be independently associated with worse-than-death status for both hips and knees. This was further investigated using receiver-operator curve analysis. So this is a method used to determine the sensitivity and specificity of a test and can be used, therefore, to determine a threshold value or a cut point of a continuous variable like the Oxford hip score and the Oxford knee score that is associated with a dichotomous outcome like worse than death status. Okay, that's a, that's a really good overview there, Claire. Thank you. So if we move on to the findings of the study, and if we obviously, as you would do in your paper, start with hip replacement and these sort of raw figures, how many patients prior to joint replacement were defined as having a worse than death status? So <clears throat> prior to total hip replacement, 391 patients, which was 19%, um, were defined as being in a health state worse than death with a negative EQ5D score. And 99% of these patients worse than death reported extreme levels of pain um, on the EQ5D score. Mm. Following total hip arthroplasty, the median EQ5D index for the whole cohort um, improved from 0.36 to 0.79. Um, and the number of patients worse than death reduced from 19% to 2%. And I think it's important to note that these patients weren't the same patients. Mm -hmm. The ones that were worse than death uh, postoperatively um, weren't necessarily preoperatively. So it doesn't seem to be a function of, of personality. Sure, sure. And in terms of when you then went on to look at the predictors of, of, of worse and death status on the multivariate analysis, what did you find and what were the thresholds for the Oxford HIP score you identified? So the multivariate analysis determined that for HIPs, um, having a poor joint specific HIP function um, measured using the Oxford HIP score um, was an independent predictor of worse than death status in addition to the presence of COPD. Um, so none of the other demographic variables and none of the other comorbidities um, were significant uh, in the multivariate analysis. Mm -hmm. So the rock analysis was then associated with a highly significant area under the curve uh, and identified a threshold Oxford hip score value of 14 and a half um, as being associated with worse than death status mm -hmm. with fairly high sensitivity of 82%. 
and a specificity of 75%. So I think the key message here is that worsened death status was significantly determined by the hip-specific function yeah. rather than other comorbidities. And general health, yeah, absolutely. And so with regards to the one-year outcomes, which you sort of alluded to in Fontenot Place, how did this correlate with the, uh, the worsened death status? So I think the second key message is that those patients who were worse than death preoperatively achieved significantly worse outcomes at one year with Oxford hip scores, which were a mean of 7.7 .7 points worse um, than those who weren't worse than death preoperatively. And this is important because this value exceeds the um, minimal clinically important difference for this score, which is five. Um, it was also associated with worse patient satisfaction rates. So patients worse than death preoperatively um, achieved, were satisfied 85% of the time versus 92% uh, were not worse than death. Yeah. Okay, so that's obviously the hips. And if we now move on to the knee replacements, what did you find in regards to these outcomes we've just discussed and how did that compare to the total hip replacements? So the picture was very similar for knees, um, though it wasn't quite as bad. So 12% of patients were worse than death preoperatively, um, all of whom, again, reported extreme levels of pain. So following knee replacement, the median EQ5D index improved from uh, 0.59 to 0.76. And the number of patients worse than death reduced uh, from 12% to, to 3%. Again, the multivariate analysis determined that Oxford knee score was an independent uh, association with worse than death status. This time, though, uh, peripheral arterial disease was the comorbidity, well, the only comorbidity associated um, with this status. Again, the rock analysis um, provided adequate sensitivity and specificity uh, and suggested a cut point of, of 17 and a half. So an Oxford knee score of 17.5. Was the cut point for worse than death status? Um, in terms of uh, the outcomes at a year, the pattern was similar. So patients worse than death preoperatively uh, achieved worse one-year outcomes with a mean Oxford knee score, uh, which was 8.2 points less uh, than those not worse than death, and satisfaction rates uh, of 73% versus 84. And again, that exceeds then the MCID for the absolutely, Oxford knee score. Absolutely. So, Prof, if I come back to you, with regards to the waiting list data for both of these, which you looked at as well, what did, what did you find? The waiting list data, because it was over a relatively short period of time in the recent history, uh, it doesn't fully achieve statistical significance, but there's absolutely no doubt that the patients who wait longer have a higher uh, worsen-death score, and if we have, there's no doubt there's a trend towards that. The interesting thing is that the patients who were in a state worse than death were often seen earlier uh, perhaps because the GPs are good at picking out patients who are uh, suffering and also because we do have a degree of humanity and we like to see them quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the waiting, although there is a little bit of evidence to show that the longer you wait, the worse you become, there's no doubt that there's also evidence to show that the system of prioritisation by people contacting you uh, makes a difference. So uh, that's obviously very reassuring that, like you say, that we, we potentially do pick up the patients who are suffering the most. So if we, uh, great, great overview of the, I think the key findings of the paper, and, and if we move on to sort of what, what does it mean, what are the implications of the study? Uh, you know, it's obviously found that whilst awaiting neural MRF, let's just repeat those numbers for our listeners, 19% of patients with joint disease of the hip and 12% with the, the knee are defined as having a state worse than death using the EQ5D score. 
I mean, the strength of the study are, are without doubt, you know, there's a large number of patients from a, a robust prospective database, and obviously excellent and robust analysis have been performed throughout. So, Prof, again, if, if I could ask you, what do you, what do you feel are the key findings of the study and the work, and considering any potential limitations of, of the data? Um, first of all, we have to accept that the state worse than death is a state that was given by members of the public who didn't have any diseases concerns whatsoever. Uh, and it, but it was allocated by the general public, over 3,500 of them, uh, in an independent review which had nothing to do uh, with arthritis of the hip. And so it has strengths, but it also has the weakness that actually if you ask people who are in a state worse than death, only 15% of them would actually like to be dead. However, they do see their life as miserable, and as Chloe has suggested, it's loss of function and pain that are the two uh, predictors of it, and these are the key predictors. The other major thing here at this point is the difference between the preoperative score and the postoperative score. Almost everybody gets better and loses their pain within two days of surgery, which is a huge difference, certainly compared with, as Chloe suggested, the treatment of statins, where you take it for many, many years and you don't know if they've worked or not, even when you master it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Chloe, sort of you emphasize nicely in the discussion in relation to the importance of interpreting the results in view of how the EQ5D score is calculated. And we sort of discussed and, and, and touched upon that briefly, but can you expand on that in a, a little bit more detail? Um, of course. So. Uh, as we've already discussed, although the EQ5D is widely, widely used, it's not necessarily widely understood. And we've talked now about the 243 potential health states that it defines mm -hmm. and the fact that this definition is based on um, nearly 3,500 members of the UK population um, valuing these states and mm -hmm. deciding uh, that they wouldn't be able to endure living mm -hmm. in them. Um, so I think a criticism of the of the paper and of the the worst and death status is that it doesn't apply to the individual patients. You know, we haven't asked the individual mm -hmm. patients, "Do you feel that you're in a state worse than death?" Yes. Um, but I think it's significant that it's a value judgment that has been placed on these health states mm -hmm. by the general population. The general population who. Um, often vote based on mm. how they feel that the NHS is being funded mm. and many of whom will ultimately go on to develop degenerative joint diseases and I think I don't think you can ignore the fact that the general public are obviously mm. uh, consider these conditions um, to be serious and unpleasant to, to put up with um, and in the context of, of having a, a treatment that works uh, reliably in, and is highly cost-effective. Yeah. Um, I think it's difficult to to argue that that arthroplasty yeah. um, shouldn't be delivered. Yeah, I know absolutely. And in that figure alone, one in five patients paying for hip replacement are in that category. Um, I mean, just going back to sort of you presented the the health-related quality of life for patients undergoing joint replacement, obviously. But how does this? You know, you nicely put it in a table in, your, in the in the actual paper. But how does this compare to other medical conditions? I think that's quite important to put it into context, really. Absolutely. So um, because qualities are used to calculate the cost effectiveness of all medical interventions, um, EQ5D indexes are available for a number of chronic health conditions. Um, so if we consider our mean preoperative um, EQ5D index for end-stage degenerative joint disease of the hip, which was 0.39, and of the knee, which was 0.43, 
These are notably worse than those reported in the literature for a number of chronic health conditions, which include type 2 diabetes, which is 0.78, heart failure, 0.64, COPD, 0.52, asthma, 0.42, mm. inflammatory arthropathies. I mean, the list, the list goes mm. on. Mm. Um, I think this is especially important to appreciate in the context of resource management in the health service where hip and knee arthroplasties are often some of the first procedures to be reduced or rationed in order to save money. And in fact, they've been designated as procedures of limited clinical value by a number of CCGs um, down south. And I think what this paper shows is that doing this isn't a benign act and leaving patients in pain with end-stage hip or knee um, degenerative joint disease has significant effects, both on their health-related quality of life and on the outcome that they can expect mm -hmm. to achieve when they when they are treated with joint replacement surgery. Yeah, no, absolutely, uh, that's very well put. And Prof, if I just finish off with you, I mean, obviously, I think the implications of the study um, are obviously going to be large. But what, in sort of moving forward, what do you feel is the next step, particularly when considering that you know, increasingly, as, as Chloe's alluded to, but increasingly referrals to secondary care for joint replacement are being limited by various criteria such as BMI and PROMS. What, what, what do you think? The, the, the path forward is going to be? Well, first of all, I think that it, the point that Chloe made before, that actually patients with degenerative joint disease have a worse health status than many of the conditions that are not limited uh, to uh, access to healthcare, and where the cost-benefit is very much poorer than that for joint replacement, uh, is a major uh, question for those uh, commissioning uh, healthcare. And I think the other thing for orthopaedic surgeons is to realize that we do something which is hugely beneficial for our patients. Using a similar system, one of our colleagues published in last month's BJJ, uh, the qualities for subacromial rotator cuff repair uh, and showed that it was highly cost-effective. Uh, the same has been done uh, for uh, first ray surgery uh, for hallux valgus. Again, hugely cost-effective to sort these other healthcare uh, system. It also shows that the outcome is almost universally successful. Uh, we take somebody who is ill and we in, almost instantly make them better. Clearly, they have to recover from the surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's uh, important. Personally, I think that it's cruel uh, to create a healthcare system which claims to have universal access to care at the point uh, of delivery free uh, to limit access to the patients who would benefit most from one of the commonest surgical procedures carried out in the health, major surgical procedures carried out in the health service at the moment. Uh, and I think that no matter how, you, it's been done to reduce instant costs, but actually within a year, it increased costs to society, and more importantly, to the patients, future voters, they sit in the community with pain in a state worse than death. That's very well put, Prof, and I think that's a, that's a, a good point at which we can we can wrap up. So, Chloe and Prof, thank you so much for joining us for our podcast, and congratulations on a really excellent study that I'm sure will give our listeners and readers alike much food for thought. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us here today, and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook, and the like. And feel free to post or tweet about anything we discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us.